Welcome to the 235th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with J.D. Horn, author of the Witching Savannah series. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is J.D. Horn, the author of the Witching Savannah series. The latest book in the series, GLO, has just been released. J.D., welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, can you read the first two or three pages from your new novel, GLO? Sure, I'd be glad to. A um, little setup, it uh, takes place in uh, Savannah from the years of 1932 to 1960, so it's a little bit historical. Um, Savannah, Georgia, August 1932. The old woman couldn't have picked a hotter day to get herself buried, Jesse Wills whispered as he wiped his brow. A nervous smile came to his lips. The secrets of living and dying would forever remain a mystery to him. But he knew one thing for certain, and that was if his grandmother were alive to hear him speak of her as the old woman. She'd be chasing him around this, bo- this here boneyard with a willow switch. Sorry there, Nana, he mumbled under his breath. Not so sure he shared his wife Betty's Christian certainty as to the final disposition of the human soul. If anyone could figure out how to hold on to a piece of this world after passing, it would be his grandmother, Tuesday Jackson. She'd been a tough old gal, all right, up to the end, his Nana. Barely five foot tall and light enough for a good wind to topple, Nana Tuesday had been tough enough to best Joe Lewis in any fight. A fool might have messed with Tuesday Jackson once, but he'd never do it twice. Jesse himself had tried her patience more than that, of course, but he was not just any old fool. He had been her favorite grandbaby. Now she was gone, being placed in Laurel Grove South Cemetery's earth, one grave over from where Jesse's daddy lay right next to the plot his mom had reserved for herself. It wasn't the old way. It used to be his daddy would lie with his own people, near the grave of his own mother. But his daddy's mama had been buried out on St. Helena's Island, and Jesse's mama wanted her husband near, where she could visit him. Besides, the world had changed, at least in some ways. Jesse's cousins had invited their minister, young Pastor Jones, the preacher at Wildwood Congregational, to officiate a graveside service. Nana had never darkened the church's door in her life, so it didn't seem right dragging her in there now, when she no longer had any say over the matter. No, Nana Tuesday had never been a church-going lady. When visiting out on Defusky or Hilton Head, she would go to the woods to do her praying, or, on the rare occasion, to a praise house. For the most part, though, she had preferred to keep her religion between herself and her maker, not seeing it as being anyone else's business. It did no harm, though, in Jesse's eyes to let the fiery preacher bring his comfort to those members of his family who couldn't reconcile his Nana's beliefs and practices with their own faith. Could have been worse, anyway. His cousin Joe had gotten all caught up with Father Divine, ended up handing over everything he had to the man except the very clothes on his back. No, Pastor Jones was certainly the lesser of those two evils. Still, Jesse began his own private prayer that the young fellow would be fast about burning off the steam he built up. Jesse and his little family hung back on the periphery, seating the area nearest the grave to his uncles, aunties, and cousins, the combined mass of them forming a swaying and waving, mostly wide-clad circle around it. He loved his Nana as much, if not more, than any of them. But there had been no love lost between his wife and grandmother, and the whole family knew it. Best to keep Betty back where her comments stood a better chance of going unheeded, unheard, or at least unheeded. So, it's the opening to the... uh, the uh, heroine's uh, great-grandmother's funeral. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about GLO or the Witching Savannah series yet, how would you describe your new novel? I would describe it as um, a standalone 
prequel to the series. The series itself is about a family of witches in Savannah. It's a fun read with um, a lot of um, nuance to it, I would say. And Gilo is um, the the main three books in the series are contemporary, but Gilo steps back to take a look at um, one of the favorite characters from the series was an octogenarian woman named Gilo. This steps back to look at her life from when she was a baby to around the age of 28 when she's become a young mother herself. Great. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing the Witching Savannah series? Um, honestly, I um, the Joseph Campbell's monomyth. Um, I know this sounds a little bit intellectual versus a gut kind of inspiration, but I um, love Joseph Campbell, and I wanted to set out to build a story based on, at least loosely, on his monomyth, The Hero's Journey. And I wanted to do it with a young woman. So Mercy, who is the heroine of the first three books, um, the, the line, the source, and the void are her hero's journey. Great. And what would, what was your writing journey prior to writing the Witching Savannah series? Had you oh, been goodness. had you um, been writing fiction before? <laughs> I have. Um, I actually I went to college with um, the beginnings of a manuscript, uh, probably around 150 rough pages, um, back when you know you still wrote on a typewriter. <laughs> and um, I went off to college with those. I ended up deciding to study comparative world literature instead of creative writing. And um, what happened was that I ended up, I got discouraged because I was judging the work of a then 17 year old versus, you know, the masters like Dostoevsky, you know, I'm like, no comparison. And I just convinced myself that I would never be a writer. So I ended up, I threw that manuscript away. And um, it was probably a good 10, 15 years later that um, I encountered a you know, I'm always a big reader, but I ended up coming across um, Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. And something about his books spoke to me because they were the way he dealt with very solid and um, complex issues in an almost light and breezy way that um, belied the seriousness of, seriousness of what he was writing about. And I thought, you know, everything doesn't have to be a Russian drama, huh? And maybe I can do this too. And so that inspired me. And I wrote my first novel, which is still unpublished. Um, although I still have not given up the faith on that poor book. Um, <laughs> and I wrote it. I went through the period of trying to find an agent, find a publisher, um, was devastated by that process um, and ended up walking away for another several years. Um, my spouse found the manuscript, encouraged me to take another look at it, um, I did. I ended up this time, the manuscript got me an agent. Um, we circulated it. It uh, once again did not find a publisher, but I got notes this time from different publishers, um, like three different editors who were kind enough to take the time to say, we really liked your book. This is why we aren't buying it from you. And so I thought, okay, I can either be discouraged again, or I can take these notes and try to see if I can write something that these publishers would want. That book was the line, and it sold within six weeks. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And, and so, so what is it about the setting of Savannah that intrigued you? And I wondered if you've done a lot of historical research about the history of Savannah. I um, 
started off, I'd originally intended, and thank God I did not carry through this. Um, I had originally intended to set the line in um, a city that, or a small city that I would have made up myself. I was going to call it Taylor's Ferry. And I kept writing this and it would not, it would not, there was no life in it. It just kept falling flat. And I kept thinking about, well, what is missing in this? And I'm like, well, I would like it to have this certain aspect. I would like to have it that aspect. And after a while, I kept thinking, you know, that kind of sounds like Savannah. That kind of sounds like Savannah. And um, so I thought, you know, maybe I should just suck it up and go with Savannah. And thank God I did. <laughs> um, because Savannah itself became such a character, um, such an entity in its own right in the series. And um, yes, I've, I have done a lot of on the uh, boots on the ground research in that city. And I've spent far too many hours in the uh, main library um, going through like old newspaper uh, microfiche. And um, yeah, I love, I love doing research. I do. And um, I find I'm nerdy enough to find it a lot of fun. And what most people don't realize when you talk about research is that there is like an iceberg because you have all these great things you were dying to use that you can never work in, including the fact that someday I will probably find some way of using this is that there is an unexploded nuclear bomb off the coast of Savannah, you know, off the coast of Georgia near Savannah. And that's something mm -hmm. I, I was so certain I was going to find a work in, find a way to work in, but I had to let it go for the story story's sake. So it's the danger of doing a little bit too much research sometime. Yeah. Um, so given your success with getting uh, the Witching Savannah series published, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and are interested in writing their own novels or short stories? I, I do have very um, serious advice about this. Um, my advice is that you have to realize that no matter how good your story may be, how, how, whatever you, how you feel about it, you cannot edit your own work. You cannot do it. Um, and I would advise anyone who has a manuscript to um, engage a professional editor if they can afford it. It is an investment. It is not inexpensive. Um, and you do not want to use anyone off the internet who's just hung a, you know, a placard saying, hey, I'm an editor. You want to get recommendations. Um, you might want to have them look at maybe 10 pages first, pay them to do that. Not, don't ask them to do it for free because they're not going to do it. But, you know, pay them for like 10 pages, maybe two chapters or something to make sure that they're doing the level and the kind of work that you want. If you can't afford that, you have to get involved in some sort of writing critique group. And they're you know, they're, they're on the Internet. You can make friends on the Internet who will help you if you live in the, you know, if you don't live in a city where it's low, you know, where you can find someone locally. But you have to have other people read and critique your work. And, yes, it hurts like hell. Um, and I wish I could say it gets easier, but quite often it doesn't get easier. So there's something you'll be so in love with that your editor is going to be saying, yeah, I get that you like this, but it's got to go. Um, so that's my advice. You have to make sure that your work is polished. Um, and you have to make sure that it is as free from mistakes and typos as possible, that there are no um, plot holes as best as you can do. Uh, and that is before you even go forward to an agent. Um, that's before you try to get a publisher. And certainly if you are self-publishing, and I have friends who do self-publishing and they've done really well with it, um, you have to, have to get an editor then. You have to make sure that it has been professionally edited because readers 
will, you know, if you put one one book out there that, you know, readers say, oh, this wasn't well edited, they're not going to come back for your second book. So keep the long, you know, the long goal in line, get someone to read your work, be accepting of critiques. It's really hard. It's really hard um, sometimes, but make sure that you have a, people who know what they're talking about because everyone's a critic, right? Mm-hmm. But you need someone who actually is experienced in doing true critiques of your work. So you can put your best foot forward. Great. Well, when you sit down to write, are there ever days that you need to do something to jumpstart the process? Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny you ask that I'm, I am at that point right now. I just, GLO has just come out, and I've got to admit that I'm kind of um, at a loss. I have two different projects that are, well, actually three, that are vying for my attention and I keep just sitting there watching television. So I, I've, I've kind of got to figure out the answer to that. Normally, um, in the past, I, I treat working like a job that I, you know, I just sit down and you write until the inspiration comes. And I don't know what's up with me right now. I've got to get my, I got to get my tuchus back into a chair and just actually start, start writing. I think part of the thing is, is that when you have a, a book come out and you know that people are reading it and expressing opinions about it. For me, at least, that gets in my head a bit. And so when I sit down to write the next thing, I'm already worried about what people, you know, a year and a half, two years down the road are going to be thinking. <laughs> gotcha. So are there books and authors that inspire your own writing? Oh, gosh. I mean, if you just look at the the um, the series title for my series, Witching Savannah, that obviously shows that Anne Rice was a huge influence because um, her witching hour um, was just seminal in so many ways, as well as her um, interview with a vampire. Um, I would also say Charlene Harris, because I, I love Charlene Harris. Her her books, her Suki Sukhouse books, are very different from mine, but you can, you'll see that there's an influence. Um, and um, again, Armistead Maupin, um, I love the way he manages to deal with very serious issues in ways that make them more palatable and easy to, you know, to read. Um, then of course, I mean, like there are the, the old guys like John Steinbeck, I, you know, the, I, I love, I love, um, and my, probably my favorite book is Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master of Margarita, which is a dark fantasy, um, that is funny, touching, horrifying, wonderful. And so if anyone hasn't read that, I would definitely recommend, um, get the Mira Ginsburg translation. Um, it's about saint and going to Moscow to throw a cocktail party but it's absolutely the most beautiful book I've ever seen. It's also about writing. It's about a writer who's burned his manuscript. So, since, and what, what was the name of that again? I didn't catch um, that. The Master and Margarita. It's by Mikhail, M-I-K-H-A-I-L Bulgakov, B-U-L-G-A-K-O-V. Um, I, that book, I love that book. I read it every couple of years. Great. So where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your Witching Savannah series? Well, the easiest place is probably just witchingsavannah.com. Um, it has everything about that series, and it also talks about um, a few other writing projects that I have. Like I had a, another unrelated book come out last year called Chivalry, which is um, very different from the Witching Savannah series. Chivalry is full-on horror, um, and it's about. It's also set in the 1950s, so it's a bit historical as well, but it's about a vampire in Mississippi and it, these are not bright, shiny, happy characters. So if you want a book with relatable characters that you're going to love, don't read Chivalry. If you want some <laughs> complex characters who you might get a little scare from, go to Chivalry. Great. 
Well, again, we've been speaking with J.D. Horn, author of the Witching Savannah series. Gilo, his latest novel is out now, so go grab a copy. And J.D., thanks for doing this interview. Great. Thank you. Great. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.